Hello again, everybody, and thanks for joining us for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. And today is a very special one, for me anyway, because we are returning to the roots of Mr. Derek Bell. We are in his house in, on the Sussex coast. We're probably closer to France than we are to London. And uh, this used to be real motor racing country back in the day, with uh, John Watson living up the road, Mike Earl living up the road, all sorts of people. Dave Purley. David Purley. How could I forget David yes. Purley? Anyway, uh, I was going to say welcome, Derek, but you're welcoming, welcoming us to your, to your lovely house by the sea. Yeah, it is fantastic that you came here. I wasn't sure until after the weekend that we really were coming here. And when I saw you, you came up between the races at Goodwood. I said, it is at my house, right? Because I'm not here many days, because, you know, because I live over, overseas. And I just thought, you know, I... I I don't want you thinking I can go to London on the only day I've got free this week. I would have done it because I love doing the program, but I wouldn't have been as happy as I am with you coming to the sunshine of Pagham. And as Ed has said, it's sunnier here than it is in London. I can assure you we're all more than delighted to be out of London and down in Sussex. Fantastic. Um, yes, you live in Florida. Um, that was a big decision, actually, because you're such a local boy here. You spent the whole of the rest of your life here, despite traveling around the world. Um, but you're married to an American, of course, and that was obviously um, a big part of it. Well, she didn't want... <clears throat> my wife, Misty, I've been with her 27 years now. I thought I married to the first one for 25. That makes me about 103. <laughs> but uh, in fact, uh, we've been together 27 years, and we have a son aged 15, and we've been married 16. So it's pretty special. But the latter part of my career, unbeknown to a lot of Brits, was, of course, I was racing in America. And uh, obviously at the end of the Lohenbrau Porsche period, which was right up into the uh, basically the early 90s, I stayed on doing the races at Daytona, Sebring and races like that and all around America in the uh, 333 SP Ferraris and I couldn't name them all. And then ultimately, of course, um, um, I was doing a lot of TV doing the Formula One commentary for ESPN and Fox. And um, because of that, Roger Werner, who was the, the man right behind ESPN and then behind Speed Vision, he said, I think you should be driving a car and commentating from the car because you talk so much. So uh, he, he didn't quite create, but they had a thing called Speed GT, which was part of the SCCA series in America and became very, very popular. And it's actually the one I think the Bentley is running in right now in the States. And so I started off driving a BMW, which had a monumental crash when somebody hit me. And uh, that was a great start. And I remember everybody diving to try and get extricate me from this wreck. Where was that? That Where was, was that there? at Laguna Seca. And I came round turn three, I think it is, the right-hander, and a bloke in a Corvette who seemed to be my main problem for about five years. He just decided he had a great affection for taking me off the road. And uh, he hit me, and off the, off the road I went. Anyway, uh, that from that on, having destroyed the BMW, they said, look, come on, let's run Audis. And so I actually ran for champion Audi for about five years, which was brilliant fun in that series. But fr within the car, of course, I would commentate the various periods. So I had three to four cameras on the car and, and microphones. So I talked from the car, but we had some quite entertaining moments. I think we should introduce that. Definitely. Absolutely. We, sh we, should, get, we should get Daniel Ricciardo to commentate the race from the Red Bull. <laughs> anyway, um, Derek... Um, here we are. With I was going to add, probably not Kimmy. That's the only oh, probably not Kimmy. No, no, probably not. <laughs> that's a good point. Pregnant pauses. Well, it, where it would be silence most of the time. Mm. And then mm. 
colourful language for the other nine seconds. Quite. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to go right back to the beginning, um, way before being the Bentley ambassador in Florida and, and sports well, well, car champion yeah. and all of that. I'd like to start at the beginning because we were at the Goodwood Revival just a few days ago, and uh, that's where you won your first ever motor race in a Lotus 7, wasn't it? It seems terribly boring to talking about it because everybody's heard me rattle on about it before, but perhaps I haven't because well, it's been so it, long. Well, we'll keep it brief. Okay. No, I, I, I'd been to agricultural college at Sirencester learning to be a farmer because we had a 500-acre farm right here. And uh, when I sort of left and came back, I'd already been to the Jim Russell School and Jim had picked me out as having somebody of unusual talent for some reason. But, of course, wasn't prepared to put any money in to help me go any further. So it's great. Guarantee within a year you're on a factory team. Goodbye. And although he did encourage me, and I'm sure if it had been today, I would have been, you know, been in for one of those awards. Although I did come second in the Grovewood Award the next year, behind Alan Rollinson, a couple of years later anyway. And I came back to run the farm, and a guy called John Penfold came along to sell me some farm machinery as they would. Uh, so I was age 23, now by now. And uh, we both chatted about racing, and we built a Lotus 7 together, which on March the 13th, 1964, we rolled out having run it until about nine o'clock the night before in the piddling rain, nearly catching pneumonia, running in without mudguards on, brought it home. John then put the mudguards on at five in the morning so I could have at least three hours sleep, took it up to Goodwood and I won the race, somehow. <laughs> um, you nearly won that championship. You came second in the Lotus 7 championship and you moved on to Formula 3. I mean, that was quite a big step, actually, not only financially, but a, a, a totally, totally different car. Well, yes, but, it's, but remember, at the Jim Russell, I'd driven Formula Junior, if that's the right word, albeit Lotus 18. So I was used to sitting in a single-seater, but, you know, I was only limited to limited revs and doing a pound a lap for 10 laps. And I came home. You know, I couldn't afford any more. I was only earning 20 quid a week, for goodness sake. And so, uh, but to actually get in a proper car, but really, it's like everything. I think every driver out there has to admit there was somebody along the line that helped him. You can't really do it on your own unless you've got loads of money. And my dear old stepfather, Bernard Hender, who owned the farm, who was married to my mother, the colonel as we called him, he said he, he loved racing. He went all around the world racing and watching. And he said, you know, what can we do to help Derek get on? And so the guy that we'd had helping us with the load of seven at the end, he said, uh, you know, you've got to help him. Let's get a Formula 3. So we bought Rod Banting's Formula 3, which was a, BMC, it was a Lotus 31 with a BMC engine. The engine, actually, that Jackie Stewart had, had, had raced at Goodwood that year in 64. Which, and I then raced basically the identical car, but it was the Lotus chassis in 65. And can you believe I actually broke his lap record that next year? But we didn't shout about it because nobody knew the hell I was. And they weren't sure even then who Jackie Stewart was. But so it goes down in the history books, which was really amusing. And uh, I won my very first race at Mallory Park because they wouldn't accept me at Brands because I was unknown. So the, the Boxing Day meeting, having won at Brands, at, at Mallory at the end of that year, 65, uh, where are we, 64, same year as the Lotus 7, um, they then invited me in 65, a month later, to drive at Brands Hatch because their race had been postponed because of snow. So I actually won my class there too. So suddenly I was sort of doing quite well, but all with this little old BMC engine thing. And then we built our own engines and down here at the farm. Biggest mistake ever. Instead of buying a Cosworth engine for 600 quid, an MAE, the screaming little one-litre cars. And I went out and started to do some Europe, British races, but of course we were completely thrashed. But it was a great learning curve. At this point, did you have 
great dreams of being a Grand Prix driver. I mean, how ambitious were you? I was not never very ambitious. That was one of my problems. I just wanted to race and I enjoyed it. But, you know, all I really wanted to do was to race at Goodwood. I did that in my first race and won. Well, I was going quite well at that stage. But um, as I progressed, I really wanted to win a big race because I, I used to go to, I used to be a marshal for Bognor Motor Club and Chidester Motor Club up there. In fact, I was marshalling the day Sterling crashed in 62. I was marshalling at Madgwick and he crashed up the road at Fordwater or entering St. Mary's. Sorry. It's amazing. And I, I never, I've never ever heard you say that before. Never you never asked no, me. No, no, no. But I mean, it, it, it's, it's just you'd think it'd be one of those things of your time I would have heard. Yeah. No, no. no I, I'm, I'm amazed. No, and, and the other amazing thing about that is the fact that this year, a, a, the, the gentleman that is, is putting to compiling Marinello Concessionaire's sort of history book of souvenirs and paraphernalia and memorabilia, he, he sent me a photograph. And he said, who is in this picture? Who is the guy in the wheelchair? And he sent me this photograph, and Sterling is pushing the wheelchair, and I am pushing the wheelchair with this handicapped gentleman in. And it was the day that Sterling crashed, and I'm pushing this, but I never even remember doing it, and it's me, I could show you the black and white picture. And of course, so I thought, my God, I gotta show Sterling, who I've got to know incredibly well, like all of us. And some weeks later, I showed him. He said, yeah, that's Mike so-and-so. He knew straight away who he was. But isn't it amazing, you know, that that sort of thing, which I never knew I'd even help. He was my hero, my idol, Sterling. I'd have done anything. I mean, that was three, two years before he even sat in a race car. We should say, actually, we're, we're recording this podcast on Sterling's 85th birthday. So happy birthday, Sir Sterling Moss. Happy yeah. birthday. Indeed. So. Yeah, Indeed absolutely. So. Amazing, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. It's it amazing that he still takes the interest he does. In, you know, and everything. I mean, whatever you like to say, he doesn't have to do it. But you know what I'm saying? No, no, no. He absolutely. just has, he loves it. I mean, to see him at the weekend at Goodwood, and I mean, today he's on his way to Singapore. I mean, what a schedule he I has. I know, I know. You yeah. know, it just goes on, doesn't it? Yeah. But he just loves it. Well, at Monza this year, I, at a cost I prefer not to think about, I, I, bought, a, I bought a postcard which doesn't sound very remarkable, a 1958 Monza postcard, but it was the second of, you remember the race of two worlds when the, yes. you know, the Indy Rose? I've got one in my photograph album I could show you tonight. Right, right. In the Indy car. Well, the, whoever this man was who bought this postcard, he then went into the paddock with it, which of course you could do in those days, and every single driver in the race signed oh, it. Did he really, did they really? So it all the sort of the Indy greats of the time, like Roger Ward and Jimmy yeah. Bryan, but also, Sterling, Mike Hawthorne, yeah. Fangio, and I was just looking at it this morning actually, and uh, Sterling is the only one still with us. Wasn't that wasn't race. that the El Dorado special? It was the El Dorado special, yeah. the Maserati. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But you sort of think that's uh, what? How long ago now? Forty-six years ago. Yes. Um, and he is the only one still with us. And you think what his life has what's happened since yes. then. I mean, A, he had a huge accident that very weekend, which he yes. always said was the one that frightened him most. Then there was Goodwood. And then at whatever he was, 80, he falls down yeah. the lift yeah. shaft. I mean, yeah. he is the most <laughs> astonishing man. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Derek, to get, back, to get back to your career, I mean, the Formula 3 did put you very much on the map, actually, didn't it? I mean, you've downplayed it a bit, but, but people were talking about you. They really were. Well, and yeah, without, I mean, you're talking about my early career, so I've got to talk about me. I'm very sorry. But um, that I did, I did the year in the Lotus 31, which was just club racing. We learned a lot. Next year, what do we do? So I had, we, Colin Chapman brought a Formula 3 car to Goodwood, a Lotus 41, later that year. 
and everybody was there, Pete Gethin, Piers Courage, all the young upstars, you know. And we all went to Goodwood. We drove, I got a picture of me in this green and yellow Lotus. I mean, that was enough for me. Just to drive a car in bloody Lotus colors was sufficient <laughs> for me. And uh, Peter Wall standing by the car in the photograph I have, and off I went, did some laps. They weren't trying to find a driver. They were literally trying to sell cars. And like a mug, we went and bought it, because glamour, you have to say, Lotus always had a glamour about it. Colin Chapman, Jimmy Clark, all the people, all the colour. Yeah, yeah. Brabham just didn't quite have that glamour picture. And it cost me a year, but I learned a hell of a lot. Had some awful crashes. We had more broken chassis and suspensions hanging off the wall. The car would just change directions for no trouble at all. I mean, it was just awful. <laughs> I remember on a Monday morning, I get back from a race in Europe, and Team Lotus would phone me up and say, how did you get, what broke this weekend? <laughs> and I'd have to tell her, he said, well, we were at Claymore Ferrand, we had something break too, look, we're fixing it. It was like that every bloody week. So, but I gained it, I didn't get hurt, I was upside down in a ditch at Caserta in Italy, I mean, the shocking incidents. I was leading at Goodwood in Formula 3, one of the last races in 66 they ever did. Suddenly the car swapped ends, for no reason at all, in the middle of a corner, I mean, the shock absorber broken, but that's the way things went. So at the end of the year, it was where the hell do you go now? And really the only way was to get a Brabham, bite the bullet and get the car that wasn't as pretty. And that's what we did. And of course I joined Peter Westbury and Mac Daghorn and the guys there. And we had Felder International Racing and Sports Car Team. And that's what we did. And again, I went out on Boxing Day brands in 66 and won the race in dismal conditions. And I went on to win eight Formula 3 international races during that year, which at the time was not enough because I wanted to win nine. So having said I was, in, was I competitive, I, I just wanted to win more and I felt I should have done. There were races others I should have done. That was an absolutely, I, I thought that was a wonderful era of Formula 3. Yeah. The 60s, it was, and and it, it really deserves, somebody really should write a definitive, definitive history yeah. of, that, of that period. It was. Because there's so many wonderful stories yeah. from the Continental oh Circus and everything else. I mean, four abreast into Woodcut, you know, yeah. at Silverstone. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, going around Enna in Sicily, there'll be 16 in a group, four abreast going around the lake. Because there was no sharp corner, it was just one sort of curve and then another curve and another curve. And you sat there going along, we used to put, we used to put racers tape on our noses because we had open helmets in those days. Racers tape on our helmets under the goggles, all the suspension because was covered in racers tape because the, the dust, you know, the volcanic dust would actually sort of take the chrome off your, your, wheel, your wheels and suspension, let alone your nose. And we sit there going around at 145, 150 miles an hour looking and you knew when you were next to an Italian, you're in trouble. You know, and you think, oh, God, I hope he doesn't make a move here. How the heck we got to the end, I don't know. Anyway, but that was Formula 3. But I remember dear old Jonathan Williams yes, saying in that era, the yes. only thing more dangerous than the circuits was the hospitals. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, I, 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 again, I must say, I was so unbelievably lucky why I didn't end up in hospital. But we had so many crashes. But at the end of the year, and then, I mean, the final race of the year, that's right, I must tell you this, because we can forget about the other great races we had. Uh, but the final race of the year was at um, Hockenheim. And you would remember it, uh, Nigel, because it was, the world, it was called the F Formula 3 World Championship. And there was th each country put a team of cars in. You'll, you'll recollect it bit by bit. And each, so we had three British cars, and I was the British number one. Second was Charlie Lucas. And third might have been Jonathan, and I can't remember that. Might have been Pete Gethin, I can't remember. But each, but the big problem was the Italians. And they had, oh, the Swiss team, they had Clay Regazzoni and a Techno. 
and uh, you know, and and Xavier Perro, they had him in the car who wasn't that good. And I can't remember going through, and, and of course, the pie, not the pie, but you had Jabouille and Josso and Belt. I mean, you can't believe it. And somehow I qualified on pole. Now, how the hell I did that at Hockenheim, because I hated the place. But I probably just didn't want to be mixed up with those prats behind me. <laughs> I just don't know. Anyway, the race went on and on and on. And of course, you can't do anything. You can't get away because you're just in a mob. You know, the stadium was there, but the rest was flat out all the way around, down through the east curve, no chicanes, round the end and back. Oh, God, it was a no horror barriers. show. Through the trees. No barriers. Yeah. That's no ba oh, no yeah, barriers. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I mean, just unbelievable. And uh, I remember the last lap, and I think I was lying somewhere like fourth, came into the stadium, and Reggae Sony, thank God, was behind. And I think I was behind Jabouille and Jusso because the mattress were really strong. Do you remember they were factory cars? And it was Regas, this techno was factory. And we came into the stadium to that right hander, and I thought, I've got, I'm going to be, I'm never going to win it. But you never know, you might be able to break somebody or they'll outfund the last four corners. And as we went in there, Regas came in and he took me out. He just took me off the road and I went off, spun around and came back in on the track again. He continued down the grass to the next corner and there he took out Jabouille on the inside, took him off the road, seriously going into the le sharp left-hander, got back on the track and took somebody else off and he won the race. <laughs> he won the race and he went over the line with no bodywork at all on the car. So we all thought, actually we, a few expletives, but we cursed and swore and said, well, Fuck of this, we got. So we, we, we looked at the pictures. He had no had no wing mirrors on the car, so he claimed he hadn't won because you've got to finish the race with <laughs> wing mirrors. He had nothing left on the bloody car, sitting in a space frame. But he so Switzerland won the world championship. But that was Formula Three. You know. God, those were the days, man. He, he, Clay was bonkers in those days. He was crazy. He? he really was. And yeah. then my problem was, I then went up to Formula 2 the next year, because where else do you go? I'd won eight races. If you, do, if you stay where you are you, and you only win eight more, people are going to say, well, he's not doing very well. If you win nine, they'll say, well, so he should. And if you only win seven, he's over the hill. So the only, and Rob Widow, do you remember Robin Widows? He went on to Formula 2 that year, and he did very well. And basically, I could beat Robin on most occasions. So I thought, well, I must go up to F2. So the old man and I, we went to the bank. The old man said to me, here's, he said, here's the Formula two, 3 car, two engines, because we had two MEs, the little mini trailer truck we had with the trailer on the back. He said, you can have all that, but I don't want to see you driving down the, coffee st the street doing coffee shops in an E-type Jag. Go racing. So, of course, I saw I had like 7,000 quid. There was no way. But I went out. And I put it to put a deposit on two Cosworth Formula Two engines and a Brabham Formula Two chassis. And George Brown went down and worked at Brabham's building that chassis. So when you have it nut and bolt, we didn't have the money. And the old and I remember it was the beginning of sponsorship, right? Sixty-eight. So I remember I contacted, I went with, I, I contacted everyone I could. You know, you just write a letter and say, "Can you help me? I need money." Nobody bothered to reply apart from Avis. And they wrote this letter back, and inside there was a little badge, and it said, sorry, we can't help you, Mr. Bell. We try harder. And that was all I bloody got. But that was my sponsorship, okay? So we thought, what a hell of... I mean, can you sit physically imagine it sitting in a pack and going, where do we go? I mean, you know. So the old man said, the dear old Colonel, bless his heart, who had really now been very totally supportive, he says, come on. So... He'd already said, look, Derek, you can always come back to farming. You can't come back to racing, so let's do it properly. So off we went, went to the bank, the Midland Bank. And obviously we had a 500-acre farm to borrow the money against, but the old man never went in the red at all. So we borrowed 10,000 quid. 
and that paid for everything and the little mini transporter. Um, and off we went with this old, old tra the trailer on the back of a transit van with Ray Wardell and, and George Brown. <clears throat> and that's how we, we started. We went off and my first race was at Thruxton, I believe. And I finished, uh, I finished third behind Beltoise and Stewart, something like that. But I know I was the first non-graded driver because in those days, which is how I talked about the other night somewhere, I think it's vital that what was so great of those years, sorry, was that you had Formula 3, Formula 2, yeah. Formula 1. Yeah. And you could judge the drivers as they came up. Now you've got Mazda, Lotus, yeah. Toyota, whoever it is, all these Formula. I know you're going to say, well, there's more people out there. But there were in those days, but they all bought Formula 3s. So you had a, each country had its own championship. And if they were lucky, they got 60 or 80 of them to Monaco to qualify. Do you remember? And then they had to get into the qualifying at Monaco. And then they might get a race, 24 of them at the end of it. But at least you saw, basically, the 24 best up-and-coming drivers. Yeah. Now you don't know where the hell to go to watch it, apart from, obviously, the brilliant Autosport Awards and all that sure. goes with it. Well, the, the other thing, too, Derek, about those days, Formula 2, an up-and-coming driver could race against the world champion. Well, that's so. So that was the thing. Yeah. So you were able to gauge. Well, am I any good? Yes, Jesus, that's right. I probably am. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I went out and I was in the ungraded section because I was an up-and-comer. So Beltoise had just. I think Beltoise and Stewart were obviously graded drivers. They'd been in F1. So I, I was the first of the non-graded drivers, and that was how it went. And Jackie Oliver, I seem to remember, was just behind me in the Lot Works Lotus. He was fourth. And suddenly, you know, there was a championship looming for, you know, it, and it was brilliant. And of course, then you go to the next races at, at Hockenheim and Jimmy Clark dies. So that, that sort of put you back on your uppers because Jimmy was the one person that I had said, well, people said, oh, but racing's dangerous. Well, we knew it was, but I said, Jimmy hasn't broken the skin on his body. And then, of course, he, he has his crash. And uh, that was it. But I'd had breakfast with him that morning, you know, at the hotel. We stayed the same way. And I drove to the track with Jimmy and Graham. It was amazing. And I was me like in awe of my two heroes, and uh, you know the, I got out of the I got out of the car at my truck, and I never saw him again. So that was the beginning of International Formula Two, and it it was bloody terrifying, really. Did it, did it but ever, they were so fantastic to drive. Did it ever cross your mind to stop? Um, um, later that year, yes. But I'll, if I can just, and we're going to finish at Ferrari anyway, as you, but you know, I, I mean, I persevered through that year, had some great races, and I've, I mean, I just never forget it because Jochen Rint was in it. Now, Jochen, I thought, was one of the greatest the world had ever seen, and I used to finish second to him in, in Europe because the, the British didn't know about this because we were racing at Rouen, Reims, and all down, you know, down through Italy, Spain. But Jochen came to race because he was uh, loved racing. Bloody frustrating because, of course, he'd t we'd be out there battling away all on a Friday and Jocker would turn up Saturday, Saturday morning, go out and blow us all off, you know. And then again, he stood there in his big long trench coat having a chat and just getting the car, <laughs> off you go. And you go, oh, shit. You know, there he was ahead of you on the grid. He was brilliant, you know. But I like to think I learned a lot from him. And, um, and in fact, in the papers in France or Belgium, one weekend after the race, it said le, do, le, le roi et le dauphin. And it was Jochen and me. And because we were all, not always, but very frequently close together. But I learned such a lot. And then um, after four of those, I got the, the magic call to go to a Ferrari. But on top of that, which is really what you mentioned earlier, is that I was invited to drive for Cooper in Formula One. And Colin Chapman had asked me, to drive at Silverstone when I was out there to test a sports car after Jimmy's passing. And Colin looked up and said, you're going well this year. And he asked me to go and drive the IndyCar. 
Do you remember that? No, you don't. Well, you, remember, you don't remember being asked. But that shows the press never went, you know, and normally the press would have been taking pictures of the Indy car and Graham, you know, Graham was in one car and literally. And, and Spence, Mike Spence drove the Well, that's the right, other, he yeah. drove the car. But Mike, Mike wasn't in the car at that point. And Colin said, would I shake it down for him? Then I was literally, he said to me, he said, this is in front of all these people, you're going well this year. And I went, God's talking to me, you know. So I went, so he said, and then finally said, he said, come on down. He said, have you ever driven an automatic? I said, no. He, he said, take my Jag out. So I went up and down the runway and I came back and said, I can drive an automatic, Colin. <laughs> I'm all right now. <laughs> Don't let anybody get his foot in the door. So they stuck me in the car, helmet on. I, 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 I did have a photograph. And I was sitting in this damn thing out the back of the pits. And they said, um, we can't let you out until Graham stops because you can't hear the cars go around. Of course, in those days, you had no marshals anywhere. You can't believe you did that, can you really? So... Um, so I sat in it with it, warming it up, you know, goggles and helmet, all ready to open-faced helmet, no less, ready to go out. And of course, they come up and say, sorry, Derek, Graham's had transmission problems. He's taken your car over. So I never did get in it. But I had Cooper after me, and I had to, I'll briefly go into it because we're going to finish this era very quickly, is that I, of course, I, at the same time as I had Ferrari. And also then John White came on about driving the GT40 because Le Mans was later that year. And uh, so I had Ferrari and Cooper. Now, what would, who would you have driven for, Cooper or Ferrari? <laughs> Come on, I'll put you on the spot now. Well, um, there was no decision to be made, was it? But particularly by 68, I mean, Cooper were essentially done, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I think that well, they hadn't quite got out of They hadn't quite got the new car when I got in. Okay. And uh, so did, you, did you actually test it? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I went and had my, I had a test at Silverstone, and it wasn't very good. I don't know about lap times, but I wasn't totally happy in it. Remember, I hadn't driven an F1 before. But I was, but it was big, and um, then I went overnight to Monza. I was going to test actually the Ferrari at Crystal Palace. That's right, at Goodwood. No, at Goodwood. And they said when we're racing at Crystal Palace this weekend, which I was in the race, and they said which Jackie X was driving it, and I just saw this Fred Ferrari, red Ferrari. And I went, God, that could be me next week. You know, I mean, you can't. I mean, you're salivating, yeah, yeah. aren't you, really? So I can't remember. I didn't do a very good race. I think I was too nervous, and. Um, then, and Jackie crashed. So they said, sorry, no test. And I went, well, that's it then, isn't it? Cheers, I'll never get the chance. Then a week later, come to Monza. So I went to Monza and there were like 16, 14 drivers there. And some, I couldn't, well, some of the names carried on. I, mean, I can remember the names, I can't remember. And um, you know, I got the drive. Whether I really got it, I have no idea. Whether they just liked me, but off I went. And the next day I went to the factory and I met the old man, which is yet another story. And I had 24 hours with him, which was phenomenal, just to meet him on his own at the Cavallino and have lunch and things like that. All he did was talk about Jochen Rint, incidentally, which pissed me off a bit. <laughs> I thought I can't match him, sir. I'm sorry. But uh, so anyway, so I went. So then I went back and I went to Silverstone again and tested the, the Cooper again, ran it again. And then I was asked to uh, go and talk about my contract. So I went with Cooper. So I remember going to this office, you know, and I remember the thing called the Mayfair scale, which I'm sure you'll remember intimately. All I know is just part of the deal that they got a certain amount of money for the certain number of points they got, probably just the same as today in a different format. And a little more official A little bit think, more yeah. official, yes. So we sat there and a guy called Major Owens talked me through it. I had a, you know, I saw the car sitting there and they said, this is the car you'll have next year. And it was only halfway built. I'm going, Christ, they're slow, aren't they? You know, but anyway, so this is the car you'll have next year. And uh, it didn't look much different to the one I was been driving this year. And uh, so 
so Major Owen's chatting to me in this room, you know, and very formally. And I, I'd heard figures bandied around, but somehow 100,000 quid stuck in my mind as being, <laughs> you know, what you got as a, a driver at <laughs> Formula One. You see? So how wrong can you be, I thought. So we go through it. And as he talks, he's talking to me. He says, well, he said, we were part of the Mayfair scale, but he said, we've had a pretty bad year or two and we're not part of that now. So we don't get that money coming in. So I might, me 100 went down to 50 and it was gradually getting, so it got down to 20,000, 20, okay, in my own mind. And he said, you know, we've got this to do, we're building new, we've got a new premises and we've got this and we've got that and the other. Anyway, it went down 10,000, 5,000. I thought, where the hell are we going here? He says, so, he, so I said, well, so what are you actually offering me? And he said, well, he said, let's just say five pounds is a nominal amount. <laughs> Seriously. You and I sat down, I looked at him, and, I went, <clears throat> and of course, you know, I mean, I was a bum farmer from Pagham. What the hell did I, I couldn't negotiate. There was, I didn't, I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't have anybody to negotiate, because he might have got me 25 quid, you know, <laughs> we'd have probably taken it. And I went, oh, it's, I mean, seriously, it's true as I'm sitting here, and they could never refute it. And I went, and I thought, he said, but, so I said, well, I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> So I left and I went back to Ferrari the next day, went down to Modena again to sort of supposedly sign my contract. I got down there, but meanwhile, my wife at that time was terribly ill in hospital here with a thing called colitis, bloody ill. And of course, I was getting a hell of a stick from the family because she, you remember all this, I was getting a hell of a stick from the family because, you know, she was ill in hospital. It was an, you know, an emotional thing. Lots of our friends had been hurt in racing. And I was making it worse by joining Ferrari. So the degree that when I walked in my parents' house over the road on the farm, um, about well, the next day when I came, came back down, my mother stood there with my mother-in-law, both of the couple of gin and tonics at about two o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> half a gallon each. They both drank for the county, my mother for Sussex and my wife's mother for Leicestershire. <laughs> and they're, they're surfing on their gin and tonics. And as they walk in, they said, you have got a telex, a telex here, telegram here from Ferrari. I said, all right. And they said, it says, if you, if, would you please come to Moderna and sign your contract? And they both looked at me in the clank glasses. If you sign that contract, you'll never walk in this house again. And nobody knows Whoa. all this stuff. So you're wow. hearing it for the first time. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> so, what am I? I mean, I was on such a big high. I had all these people wanting me to drive, and I, my was like that. Meanwhile, my dear wife Pam at that time was in hospital, and I thought she was very ill. And uh, I thought, oh God! So I thought, but you know, I went to see her that night, and so she said, "Hello." And she was bubbling because she was feeling better, you know, but wasn't well. And she said, "She said, how did it go at Ferrari?" I said, she, she, "I said, great." I said, "They've offered me a contract." She said, "Brilliant! When are you going to sign it?" <laughs> I thought to my parents and so I, so I so I went home and uh, I never talked about it again and they never brought it up ever again mm, really? that so I went so but I went down to race then in the uh, for, for Formula 2 race at Monza in the Lotteria oh, yeah, the Lotteria yeah. and I got pole position <laughs> I'm sure these are all fixed but I got pole in a Ferrari and there were four Ferraris in the race and all these young aspiring Italian blokes. Well, of course, the Ferrari was great if you keep the speed going, a bit like the 312, but you couldn't do anything in a mob because it didn't have any torque. So to cut a long story short, I ended up being about eight, lying eight or something, going through the parabolica, and I got hit up the tail by somebody. I was told, I think something broke, but whatever. 
and I spun around and my own Brabham, which Peter Westbury was driving, crashed, and two of the Ferraris. I took the whole Ferrari team out. Really. It was a huge, huge crash. He just so went yeah, through the yeah, air, that's right. dropped out of the car, the car exploded. Oh my God, he broke his ankle or whatever. It was awful. And, uh, and of course I thought, well, that's it, because I hadn't signed my contract, because I wasn't actually very happy about Ferrari, because I'd heard so many bad stories. So I thought that was it. They gave me my money, 250 quid, and I jumped on a plane and came home to England. And my wife, Pamela, at that time, was in hospital and they had it on bloody nine o'clock news. Anyway, she wasn't totally <coughs> over the moon about that either. But she was all right. And then, then I thought, that's it then. I'll never hear any more. And then three days later, Telex comes through, through Keith Ballisat at Shell. He's all went through Keith. And it said, please come to, out to Modern to, Modern to sign your contract. I thought, shit, I've done it. Get pole, wreck three Ferraris, and they still want me. I must be one of <laughs> well, their boys. Well, because the, the, the old man always loved drama, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So well, yeah. you didn't have a quiet no. debut, did you? I no, mean, no, so. no. I told them I was around. And so that was it. So, um, so I, I, like you can imagine, I was on that next plane to Milan and picked up my rental car, which is what we had to do, a little Fiat 124, off down to Maranello. And I walked in the office. And uh, as I walked in the office, um, 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 Gotzi, Mr. Gotzi, who was his right-hand man, and looked after us all. Never quite sure what he did, but that was his job. And he, as I walked in the office, he said, Derek, that was wonderful. And El Commander Tori was so happy with you getting pole position. Here you are. And he gave me a check for $1,000 for wrecking three Ferraris bizarre. and getting pole position. Totally bizarre. And, and he said, here's your contract. I've never signed a contract so fast in my life, actually. And that was it. Actually, Derek, we've got a question. We've, <laughs> we've, we've got a question from one of our listeners um, who says, what do you think of what's going on at Ferrari at the moment? More sort of Machiavellian politics. I mean, it's the same, same story in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know because we, although we got much more information these days, we actually haven't <laughs> because there's so much is going on down there that you don't know. I, I think it's awful when they rock the boat the way they do. I can't believe that what, as far as I know, I can't believe that Montezemolo has done a bad job. I don't think he's, I mean, he's obviously up there in a pretty important elevated position, probably above what he should be at. But I think if he'd been probably left to run Ferrari instead of get a major player at Fiat, he might have been able to do more with the team. But I thought, I mean, he came all the way through, don't forget, with Enzo. I mean, I guess he was there when I was there, but I didn't remember meeting him. But I just think, you know, the way they rocked the boat in the middle of the season and, and, and even the fact they brought in the new team manager, who I met, Mr. Mattiacci. I met him in uh, a Daytona this year at the 24-hour. And he, he, was the head of U, he was the head of Ferrari USA. And as much as I thought he was a pleasant man, when you suddenly hear he's going to run the Ferrari team, you go, where did he come from to do that? And they used to do that. Do you remember Franco Lini was oh, the team uh, manager? Yeah, mainly, I mean, he did know a lot about racing, he just, but, but mainly about writing about it. That was, yeah, that's that right. was the thing. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. but he talked a lot. Oh, he wrote certainly a lot. talked a lot. And yeah. so he ends up being the team manager at Ferrari, you know. And uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I honestly don't, I don't know what to say. All I know is that you've got, and I think this is the same with every team, and I don't agree with lots of the stuff that's going on in Formula 1, or I feel sorry for the drivers in many, many ways, is that I think you have to have, a, a, you, have, to have you have to have a good feeling amongst the teams, I, that each team has to have its own, the, t the drivers have to get on, the t mechanics. How can you possibly have two businesses doing the same thing and they're fighting each other when they should actually be pooling all their resources to get the best result? I mean, the teams that have a, a good rapport between the drivers, they're probably doing quite well. 
You know, I mean, who knows what's happening at Red Bull right now? I don't know. I'm sure Vettel isn't happy with Ricciardo going on. And none of us would be. But I feel that um, I think there has to be, a, 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 even the stuff at McLaren or, and at Mercedes, I think it's not McLaren, it's Mercedes, isn't it, we're talking about. Um, I mean, I feel sorry for what's going on for the drivers because they just want to drive. And I remember Dave Coulthard saying one day, he said, God, we get, once that flag drops, at least we can be ourselves. But actually, they can't anymore. Because they're being told every minute, go a bit faster. To have a, you're, a bloke that's never driven a race car in his life telling you to go faster is a bloody joke. Well, yeah, but I mean, in fact, this has been a great turn-off for the public. This yeah. sort of, the drivers literally, it's almost like driving by numbers. Yeah. Instructions from their race engineers all the time. But that is now being curtailed. Yes, by the, exactly. So, for once, it seems as though they are listening to you know, yeah. what the fans like and don't like, which is a good step. I just think the drivers... The, the point is, I look at it this way, and I've said this on a few things this year. We, the word is racing driver. Now, what does that really mean? It means we get out there and we race. So give the guy a car, make it as good as you can, and let them bloody race. And even, the, I still can't quite understand the different types of tyres, because I don't see how mum and dad at home or with the boys taking them to the races can totally understand, because they don't always know, they don't know in the crowd, that they've changed from a red to a white or yeah. whatever yeah. colour tyre. It's become too complicated. Yeah, I think, and it's done it in sports car too, and they're even doing a lot worse, I think. And they, they you know, why don't we, can't we have two sets of tyres, they're identical. You know, you have two, they're, you know, mediums or, or the teams can choose the two. There's two types of tyre, they can choose them, but they have to run them the whole race. Uh, you know, because they did well in qualifying, or the same for everybody, if you like, but make it more simple for the public. What, what is the advantage of having different tyres? You know, when you, it's the, we're in entertainment. We're not out there to prove how wonderful Pirelli can build a softer tyre to last eight laps than another one to do to 38. We're out there to race cars, and I, you talk to some, I, I've talked to one driver, and he just says, all I want to do is race. And you get into the sport, the new sports car rules, and as much as I think it's great to see what they're doing, we have to do the bit for the environment and all the rest of it. When you hear a driver, and I can tell you, I wouldn't tell you his name, he said to me, we actually have to back off, because it tells us in the cockpit that we're, going, we're using too much fuel in the middle of a lap. I mean, is that really well, racing? So, somebody, somebody got a penalty in Beijing in the Formula E race for using too much battery. Yep. I, mean, I, that, I, that's I thought you were going to say someone got a penalty in the Formula E race for going too quickly. Dario Franchitti was doing the commentary, and when I see him, I must yeah. congratulate him for keeping awake to the end of the race. Really? Was it poor? Anyway. It was slow, Derek. Oh, was it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and changing cars in the middle of the race is something else. Yes, I this is very odd. <laughs> uh, we, we're, I'm, I'm going to have Sorry, to move us along, I'm afraid, because we've because we've got um, questions from our listeners. And, Sorry, Rob. Forgive me. Um, Derek, Will Dale wants to you to say a bit about Stefan Beloff, because um, obviously, huge, huge, huge potential, and you drove with him, you raced with him. Yeah, and I, and, and, and I got to know his father really well, and uh, he calls Sebastian my son, son, when he meets him. It's really sweet. And we've been with him last year at the laps we did at the Nürburgring, and then this year he came again to when we were signing autographs, and he gave me a beautiful book uh, that they had done about Stefan in pictorial. You know, yeah, I've got it here, I'll show you. I've still got it, unless I took it to the States. But. And it was, um, uh, I mean, he was, he was just raw talent, totally raw talent i mean he was bloody quick all he knew was how to race okay flat out which again almost if he'd been out there now he would have 
he would have he would have shot himself because at least he could go flat out. The big disadvantage to Stefan is when I took the car over, the, they would call me up and say, "Turn the boost down, turn this down," because he's used all the bloody fuel. But uh, seriously, and people would watch me droning around, going bells out of it. He's really had it, isn't he? And say, "Thanks a lot," you know. But he was outstanding, and he was obviously quicker than me. But not all the time, but uh, over an hour we were pretty bloody comparable. But he, he was just a, a raw talent, and um, he was such a nice kid. You know, he was, I, I didn't know him in Formula One terms, but I knew him obviously when he was racing in F1, but he was racing with me too. And he was just a fabulous person, young, and just let it all hang out. I, my disappointment is, and I've, it's actually in his book, although it's written in German, and I express my feelings that he should... Um, he should have been taken in hand by somebody along the line, whether it be Ken Tyrrell, who actually, I have to say, I thought would have, might have done more with him. And when he left Porsche to go to Ken, I thought, good, maybe they'll get hold of him. Ken will get hold of him and, what's the word, mature him very quickly into a, into a great talent. I mean, he'd, he'd handled Jackie Stewart, who obviously was a great talent. He'd handled Francois Sever. <clears throat> and I thought that he would be able to do the same for Stefan. And he calmed down Jody, didn't he, for that matter? Ken well, there you are. I'd never thought of that side of it, but yes, you're right. And I thought he'd do it. And I think I remember um, uh, one of the, I, I perhaps shouldn't say it, but I, I've said it in books, but we were at the Nürburgring and we were leading by quite a, you know, like two laps or something ridiculous or a lap or half a lap, whatever it was, several minutes. I mean, even Ed and Senna wasn't on the same lap in the Yurst car, you know, three or four back. And we're leading. I'd done my bit, he'd done his bit, and Stefan was in there driving. And uh, he started to click off lap after lap, sort of three seconds a lap coming off the top, which was brilliant. But we were well in the lead. Now, in the John Wire days, they'd have put a board out saying, OK, kid, we're OK. Hang in there. You know, don't let's not push it anymore. And I walked up to one of the leading players at Porsche and I said, uh, wouldn't it be a good idea just to sort of put a hold, take it easy, board out or good stuff? And he said, no, isn't he wonderful? And he never came round again. And he stuffed it. Now, he didn't get hurt that time. He destroyed the car. But I'd never won at the ring, and I was desperate to win. But, uh, but it shows that I think he should have been controlled because he could have Sosley had a fatal accident that day when you think where he went off. And, of course, he did it the next year. And I think his accident was basically totally unnecessary. A, a very silly place to try and overtake a number one driver next, you know, to overtake Jackie. I mean, what a bloody place to do it when it's a flat out corner. I don't understand that. But as a talent, he was amazing. And I'm just, it's tragic that he's gone because to me, he probably was probably the, the quickest they ever had in Germany. I don't know. Um, Sorry, you were going to say no, something? No, I was just going to say, I look back and I think of him as the great unrealized talent in Formula One. Yeah. Derek, um, there's a question from, his name is Federico Pinero de Mello. Uh, we have listeners all over the world. He's not from Pagham, is he? He's not from Pagham. <laughs> He's not from Pagham, Derek. Um, he, he, he wants you to talk a little bit about the 917 and the 512, obviously, the Porsche and the Ferrari. Mm. I guess there was really no comparison. Or could you, I mean, the 917 was a better car, yes? Or? Well, to, to basically, 512 and then the 917, because the first, yeah. my first ever sports car race was Spa and the 512. Um, and I mean, fancy going to Spa for the first time in a 512. Because I say to all the young guys today, look, go there in something small like a two-liter Lola or a Chevron or a you know, saloon car and learn the tracks in something sort of insignificant. Anyway, and uh, so you I drove the... You're saying you hadn't seen Spa till you went in a... No. Well, this is, and, this, oh, no. and this is old Spa. 
This is old well, school, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? But, you know, we didn't think. We just drove, didn't we? That's where we went. I mean, you know, I got, you got Formula One pictures going around, you know, Monza, and there's pictures. I got one in the study there, and all you can see is grass and trees, and the, I've got the tail out going through a vent. I mean, it was light there, though, wasn't it? But um, anyway, I'm not saying, oh, weren't we wonderful? We were just bloody stupid, to be honest, because we just did it. But if I hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it. Well, it's true, but I mean, that's the way it was. I mean, you had nothing to compare it with. No. It wasn't as though you were comparing it with now and thinking crisis is dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was dangerous and it had always been. That's right. But, we'd basically be. but we basically drove within it. So, but the 512 was, was actually very good for Spa because the 512 always understeered. And it didn't have that much power, but it was quick. I mean, we, we were all running near the front. Um, my teammate was a tad slow, like 24 seconds a lap slower at that point, but it didn't really matter. And, I, and then we had a couple of fires just to sort of aid the situation on, in the car. And um, literally three times I was sitting, I got back and, okay, the car's okay now, because we're on the hill. Do you remember at Spa? Yeah. Came in for fuel, and I'm sitting there, turned the key, and it just exploded. And of course, so I thought, oh, to hell. So they actually, the mechanic actually threw the fire extinguisher because the handle had broken on my door. So he threw the fire extinguisher through, through, the, through the door and pulled the, and helped me get out. And I leapt out, and I got my face burned. I really did, but not enough to go to hospital. I just, so I got out, and they said, okay, they whopped all the fuel. Fuel's running down from the car, 20 pits further up, pissing down the gully. You know, they're tipping gallons, churns of fuel, and it's coming down under my car, you know. So, because every time there's a spark from the starter, <laughs> so it happened three times, and the fourth time I was getting wise, because I'm very intelligent. And so the fourth time I actually, I actually put my leg inside the cockpit, like that, ready, and I sort of, obviously, and I leant in, the door was up above my head, and I put my leg in, and I turned the key, you know, and waited for the explosion. And um, it started up, and I, it's all right then, jonk, 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 jonk. So I got in, and off I went with no window and a burnt face. But apart from that, it was good. And, <laughs> and from that, Mr. Ferrari was impressed, because I got the call to go back to Ferrari for, uh, for Le Mans. Well, that, yeah, as a works driver. So I went back and drove the works Ferrari with Ronnie Peterson at Le Mans. And it was, uh, but we're not going into that. But then from that, I went on to John Wire, who had been on to me back in 68 about driving the GT40 with Pedro, which I did, couldn't take because Mr. Ferrari pointed out I had a contract with him. And so I couldn't drive for GT40, even though Ferrari weren't there back in 68. So that was it. And so I went to, I had to test drive at Goodwood and uh, with Ronnie Peterson and Peter Gethin. A good, I mean, why they brought it good, I guess, because John Wyatt found it easier to come here, and it suited me, although I didn't know it that well. I mean, I was still pretty young. But I somehow I got the drive. I think it was really because Ronnie had to concentrate on Formula One because I thought he was an outstanding driver. Um, but basically, the Porsche was just a newer update. It was, it was a better version of 512. I mean, if you drive the later Ferraris, which I didn't, they, weren't, they, they, they were a lot better. That early one was a bit, bit truck-like. But the 917, just more compliant. It just did everything better. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. <clears throat> we could talk all day, but we have to move on. Um, Cameron McCauley, Derek, says that he thinks that he remembers that you were having dinner with Hans Stuck when you were told you'd won the World Endurance Championship in 85. Is that, he wants to know if this is true. <laughs> Maybe you don't remember either, actually. 80, 80, 85 and 86, right? 85, we won outright. 86... For some reason, for 86, obviously Porsche were pretty keen for Stuckey to win the World Championship. Stuckey was doing that um, Interserie, and they had a very special lightweight super-duper Group C car without any heavyweight stuff in it, 
you know, one pump instead of four and everything lightweight. And it was gorgeous, you know, made of all special materials. We went to Norris Ring and at that point Stuckey and I were on equal points because we'd been driving together all year. So we, we get to Norris Ring and, uh, or we don't, I'm not going to Norris Ring and John Fitzpatrick, bless him, phones me up. He says, would you drive my Goodyear Shod J. David car? He said, it's on Goodyear tires. I'm sorry, it's not as good you know, as the other tires, but, you know, it's going to give you a chance to get a few points. And it was really bloody nice of him. He probably got start money, but <laughs> whatever it was, I did it because I needed to be there. So I go out and I qualify like 12th. I mean, I really wasn't in the hunt at all in this dear old thing. So we're all there. And of course, you know, we're, we're racing for a German guy to win this race. So the race starts and off goes Stucky. I'm, I'm depressed, blaming everything but myself. And I go off and trolling around. And after like, it's about 50 lap race. And after, you know, 20 laps, I'm sort of lying 12th and Stucky's leading. And then I, I come by the pits. And as I go by, I see this big crowd of people in one of the pits. So as you go storming by, I went, that's the Porsche pit. Next lap round, I go by, that's the Porsche pit. And I went, and I went, bloody hell, that's Stucky's pit. So anyway, I did this about eight times. And every time he's there and I was going, great, you know, great. <laughs> but I knew it wasn't really helping me anything at all. So... That's how I finished way ahead of him. In fact, I was 12th and he was 13th. So um, that, was, that was that. So we then carry on the rest of the year driving together, getting points together. <laughs> and it comes to the last race at Suzuka or Fuji, one of the two. And we had some problems there. I think we, we didn't go very well. Stucky got hit by a slower car early on in the race, went in the pits and had to change some of the bodywork. Carried on and we actually had to beat Derek Warwick in the works Jaguar. But um, we had to finish, if we finished ahead of fourth, we were gonna win. Anyway, so that was it. And uh, we weren't gonna finish above fourth place. So we were gonna be, you know, further in the, we're not gonna beat the Jag. And uh, so after the race, we we're all back at the hotel, all depressed and everything. And um, Norbert Singer comes, <laughs> walks in, Stuckin actually standing in the foyer. And Norbert Singer walks in and he says, uh, Herbel, very congratulations. So I said, what for? He said, you've won the world championship. I said, well, how did that happen? So he, sa so he said, well, he said, first of all, uh, the Jaguar was found to have missed a lap or something, something incorrect scoring, so you finished ahead of it. And he said, and I said, yeah, but that makes Stucky the champion. Said, no, no, he said, do you remember that day at Norris Ring when you finished <laughs> <laughs> And I beat him by a 12th over a 13th position. So that was it. <laughs> Good story. I like Great. it. Good question, Cameron. <laughs> Derek, uh, would you, Neil Kirby uh, wants to know whether you th think that your 81 Le Mans victory with Jackie Eakes in the 936 was, was your most perfect drive of all your amazing sports car victories? At Le Mans, I assume you mean. Yeah. There were some other ones that were better than that, but I think. But um, I mean, the whole—I couldn't tell you one win from another. I remember when we won in the Mirage. But once you started winning in the Porsches and the 936, I can remember vividly. Because, actually, having said that, because it was a different sort of car, I wasn't driving it and, uh, until the last minute, and uh, because I meant to drive uh, another car with Steve O'Rourke, and he very kindly released me. Um, and I went and drove the car. I mean, I hadn't sat in it until we got to Le Mans. I did the fastest lap I'd ever done in my life around Le Mans in my first session, which is irrelevant, really, but it meant I felt at home in it. 
And, um, you know, here I was driving a real proper racing Porsche and we had no problems and we led basically from start to finish. So it was a perfect race and there was nothing wrong the whole race uh, with either of us. And, I, you know, driving with Jackie was just such an amazing experience because he didn't put a foot wrong and he brought the best out in me and I didn't either. And, when, and we never came in with grazes on the car or... I mean, I don't remember any of us, I mean, really spinning of our own. We never did anything wrong of our own accord. He was just the most perfect guy to guide you. And that's what I had hoped to be doing with Stefan Beloff. And I did with Stucky was to make them a bit more reason. But, they, you know, we were all older than Beloff going back to that scenario. But I think the, the 936, yes, was magnificent. But it was a big surprise. I mean, that was never meant to be there. So, yeah, I mean, that was really, that was a great race, but I don't know if it was the most, we had some super races with the 962s. So, ma so many of them. There, <laughs> were, there, were, f there were three more, you see. But um, I, mu I must ask you, um, seeing you at the Goodwood Revival and listening to you talking today about those Formula 3 days when, you know, it really was very, very dangerous indeed. Um, it's amazing what you've done, where you've been, what you've achieved, and there you are still standing at Goodwood where it all started. I mean, you must, you, no, but you must sometimes think, you know. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> Quite <laughs> often think. No, I know what you mean. No, you do. I mean, you, 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 I do, it concerns me. And that's why sometimes when you get in a car that isn't very good or has a problem, you get, you do, you do think, what the hell am I doing? Because we, but not only that, I mean, all the years I was out there and all the guys I raced against, and I'm still able to go out and drive moderately well. And, uh, you know, I had a really good race in that Jaguar D-Type and finished fourth. And, I'm, you know, I had a smaller engine than all the guys around me. They had 3.8s, I had a 3.4. And I felt so at home. I got out grinning every time because it was such a bloody beautiful car. Had you driven a D-Type before? I drove one six or seven years ago, uh, the one that um, um, Nigel Webb owns. And I actually didn't like it. And I wasn't very good in it. I didn't like the I didn't like the feel of it. Now this one is basically the same, but it's probably set up differently. And from the moment I sat in it, uh, when we did a sort of twenty lap test a week before, um, I felt at home. I mean, I got away grinning, and I'm going, "Why do I like this so much?" And you, we used to say, "If you're still smiling, then you ain't going quick enough." And I didn't really know until I got out for official practice because we didn't have any watches on those those test days. And only when I got out there officially and was sort of running in the top four did I realize that obviously I was actually going quite well. And, you know, with, I, I mean, the car was just bloody gorgeous to drive, to be honest. Right, it was towards the end, Nigel, um, uh, Nigel Roebuck, our Grand Prix writer and our editor-in-chief, of course, of Motorsport magazine. Um, you've known Derek a long time. Looking back at Formula One uh, when he was with uh, Ferrari, um, not much has really changed. I mean, apart from the technology, it still seems the same kind of place, doesn't it? Do you think, I know you're a big fan of Alonso, do you think that he will stay with Ferrari or do you think he'll go? Well, Fernando, well, ne next year. I, I don't think he's going anywhere next year. I think, I think he'd be mad to go anywhere next year, quite honestly. Um, this will be James Allison's first true car and he's got a lot of faith in him. Things are in a bit of a state at the moment. There's a lot of upheaval and whatnot, but but changes are being are being made. And you'd have to say, for as far as Alonso is concerned, he's going to welcome change, isn't he? Because he's essentially he's been he'd wasted the five best years of his career. Mm. You know, if we're going to be honest about it. Um, 
But I can't see why would he go to McLaren, for instance, with, mm. with a Honda engine in its first in its first season. McLaren not exactly on the crest of a wave at the moment. So his contract has one more year to run, and I I would have thought certainly he's going to be there next year and then take another look at it. The thing about Lonzo is fortunate; he's in a position that there isn't much alternative for him at the mm. moment. Yeah. But come the end of next year, nobody's going to sign anybody <coughs> until they know what Fernando's doing. He's he's in a very fortunate position with that. <coughs> the the great thing about Ferrari, even going, which I, I can see even today, is Ferrari are totally unique. And when you're part of that that team, it is an amazing relationship that you'll never get anywhere else. And I think that you know, he, with the talent he has, he is just to me the most talented one out there. I believe all round talent. He always puts on an amazing performance. And uh, he, he, he drives the car to, to, to the end of the world to make it win. And when eventually, surely to goodness, they're going to have to b give him a car that will do the job. Because how can he... he and also, he's the number one there. I, well, there they don't, might not say it, but he is. And wherever else he goes, the, who the heck are they going to throw out at whichever team to put Alonso in there? And I, he, he doesn't want to go as an equal. And I think one of Ferrari's great assets is that they really don't have two number ones. Now, nearly every other team, there's punch-ups going on because the, they both think they're number ones. And I think where he is now, although Raikkonen's a brilliant talent, in my opinion, but he's been out those years and he's just not quite up to par for whatever reason. No, 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 I agree, I agree. Actually, Derek, just while I think of it, there is something I, I wanted to ask you. When you, when you, when you were, I mean, you, you drove, I remember the first time I saw you in a Ferrari was actually the Gold Cup in 68. Um, and then you did Monza which must have been something else. First Grand Prix. It, well, it was a, a first Grand Prix at Monza in a Ferrari. I know. Can you imagine it? No, I, I can't. I can't imagine what the pressure was like. It was unbelievable. I have to say it was unbelievable. I didn't sleep a wink the night before. We were staying at the Santa Storgia and the bloody clock rings every hour. And I heard every bell all the way till 7.30 in the morning. I mean, it was horrible. But, you know, you're just saying, well, I'm fit and well and I'll do it. But I tell you what, I've still got a picture. It's now of me st sitting on the grid but standing waiting by the car at the beginning and I'm going it really doesn't change you've got the team manager and you've got a couple of mechanics you're standing on the grid a couple of photographers and you're getting in a Formula One Ferrari for your first Grand Prix and you're at Monza in a Ferrari I mean my first race remember had been in a Ferrari in Formula Two it with you know my first race with Ferrari had been there so I, in a way I got over the the awe of being part of a Ferrari team at Monza but going back in you know that level and I was on the third row of the grid you know so I wasn't that far back but I was pissed off because I wasn't on the second row and Jackie's Jackie X was you know but when you think I was next to Stuart and Halm on the third I guess you're okay with it but I wasn't really satisfied but that feeling of Monza and the atmosphere just as you walk, drive through the park to go in and you go in in that old stadium with the old rusty old catch fencing around was unreal Brian Redman once said to me when when he had a Ferrari offer at one stage he said that he just said to himself I've just got a feeling if I take this I'll be dead within a year mm. so I mean that's you know mm. it was very sort of rational why he felt that I don't know but bearing in mind what 68 was like I mean it was an atrocious year mm. beginning with Jimmy Clark mm. Um, I remember you telling me after you stopped, you stopped out on the circuit, didn't you? And then you walked back and you saw Chris Ehrman go over the yeah. the, the, the fence. Over the ba backwards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I just wondered what effect... Did you start to think, 
is this is this all never going to stop? Well, you're absolutely right, and you actually asked me in the beginning, Rob, but I didn't, as usual, get to the end of the question. But literally, when Chris spun off and hit that guardrail and went over backwards, backwards, and the car turning upside down as it went through the trees, because he was, I was going through the fence where he cracked, walking in, out, <laughs> walking into the infield, and I saw him go back, and I went, that's it, that's it. I can, he's, I had to be dead. And I, th I thought I could go back and tell my, my kids, Justin particularly, I could tell Justin that your dad got into Formula One in a year. He did the Italian Grand Prix, qualified in the top second, whatever third row is, and stopped racing. I was all going to quit. I, at that moment, I was going to quit. And then Chris, thank God, the next minute we're all watching, and I was never one that wanted to run in to see if anybody was all right because he was the other side of the guardrail and there's bloody cars whistling through. And eventually Chris walks up the bank and he's hitting and he's dusting the dust off himself. He says, shit, that was close. <laughs> I said, but he went over the top backwards. He said, oh, it landed on its wheels. <laughs> and we got to the factory the next day. I got to the factory the next morning to see the car and it had just a minor kink in the monocoque. You could have raced it. Blasted, unbelievable. And then we jumped in the car and drove down to Bellari Adriatico and had dinner with lunch with Mr. Ferrari. If you were invited to lunch on the Sunday, it meant you were going to get a contract for the next year. <laughs> so Chris and I drove down his Alfa Romeo because we didn't have Ferraris pouring out of our ears then. And that was it. Yeah. So I stayed at Ferrari and here I am today somehow. But in 69, when they came back to sports car racing, why were you not involved in that in that sports car? Because it was that was a gorgeous car. Do you remember? Yeah. It was a beautiful looking thing. Yes, but, but you never drove it. I didn't. Was that the three liter one? Wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. I I mean I'd seen the hill climb car, but there was. A, remember, I stopped racing for them in in June, when we the three of us were on the back of the grid, me Regazzoni and Brambilla, were on the back two rows at Thruxton in Formula Two, and, we, and that's how the season started like that. We end up and, and we end up going to Monza for the Lotteria in June and again we're at the back of the grid and we couldn't get near the lap times we'd done the year before the same drivers and you thought there is something really wrong here but remember they had been on the Temperata series in January that year and had dominated it but what size engine was it that's did I say that's that? That's always been open that to questions. That was Deadamich, wasn't it? Deadamich and Brambilla. And Brambilla, yes. And yes. The, and because I rose, drove the engine on the Tasman series the same engine which actually was a 1.6 Dino engine and I drove the identical engine on the Tasman as a 2.4. And Formula, three, Formula 2, of course, was 1.6. Yeah. And they went off and beat all the, the Cosmos. And, and, and never did it again. Never did it again. <laughs> I mean, they, if the car had been that good, why didn't we come back and us be on the front row at Thruxton? We should have been there the whole year. So I really don't know. So, but to answer the question about the sports car, because it's usually I've gone off at a tangent, I never went to the factory after that. Because, you know, I was, we, just, we weren't going anywhere, so I didn't have to go. I was living in England. Well, the other thing was, you did the International Trophy in sixty. Yeah, we finished ninth and 10th. In, in Chris terrible, and I in the terrible rain. rain yeah. But then, you, I mean, what, thereafter, then, they decided they were only going to oh, run yeah. one car. And they hardly did that. That was with Pedro. They were at no, Pe they had Pedro occasionally. Yeah, they had Pedro yeah, occasionally. Right. He, yeah, and the yeah. Americans put the money in for that. And they, and no, I mean, the literal words were, we're pulling out of racing. And because of that, I remember I got that call from Bruce McLaren. Would you come and drive the four-wheel sure. drive in the British Grand Prix? Which I did. And Ferrari was quite happy with it. Yeah. year before, they wouldn't have done. No. And they didn't stand in my way. I didn't know there was a sports car of any description apart from the hill climb car, which um, I'd seen Peter Shetty drove. And that's the only sports car I ever saw. And, um, and then, of course, you know, next year, up they come with a 512, and I end up back in the factory yeah. team for Le Mans. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, 
it's just yeah. unfathomable, really, yeah, looking back is. on yeah. it, how the yeah. old man operated. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's just take one final question. And um, I think this really has to, to, be, to be the end, sadly. And I don't, I'm not even sure I can pronounce his name, but it looks to me like Hoive Rodic, who is or was, Derek, the most significant person in your career? Could, would you pick a person who really was a pivotal? <sighs> Tricky. I mean, it's not that. There were two people. One was the colonel. Because without him, that's I, your stepfather, my yeah. stepfather, who I could never have gone on without him. I makes me wonder what I would ever have done. And to be honest, the other was Tom Wheatcroft when he helped me with my Formula Two program because I met him on the Tasman in the Dino Ferrari, and he said, "Hello, lad, if I can ever help you, I'll help you." Well, of course, I got dumped by Ferrari six months later. Well, we all did basically, apart from yeah, we even we all did. And at that point, of course, um, you know, I went to Tom and said, "Hey, you remember what you said, Tom?" He said, "Yeah, come on then." And so we ran a Formula Two car which made me basically, I mean, I won races in that Formula 2 car against everybody, which was fantastic, and that BT30 and the Orange Brabham. Didn't you win a race at, um, at Barcelona? Yeah, at the Grand Prix. Yeah, Mont Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and, and again, I, blowing my own trumpet, because I, there's a couple of races. That, I think, was the best driver, probably, of certainly my single-seater career. The one that gave me most satisfaction, and I got pole position, I led every lap, and according to the sheets, I got fastest lap every lap, and I had people like, of Sever and I mean Ronnie P. Everybody was behind me, and on the winners' rostrum there was me and Emerson was second, and I think Pescarola was third. I mean everybody was in it, and the, that car was bloody perfect that day. He just did everything I wanted. That was it. Yeah, but I, I had some other and, good races. And what a marvelous circuit! Oh, what oh, a Jesus, track! I know. Yeah. Wonderful, yes, wasn't exactly. It? Yes. Fantastic stories. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, we could be here till the weekend, but I'm sure Derek's got plenty of other things he needs to do. Um, it's been great. It's been great to be back at um, Church Farm, I must say. The old days of Church Farm racing. And I'm, uh, I'm, after, I'm actually off to see Michael in a few minutes' time about oh. something completely different. So the, the whole motor racing fraternity um, still here, apart from, sadly, apart from poor David Purley. Otherwise, great stuff. Thank you very much, Derek been great to see you and I uh, hope we'll see you next year at Goodwood. Uncle Lord, that's a long way. But thank you very much, yeah. Thank you very, very much. And th thank you, Nigel Roebuck. And thank you to Ed Foster, our website editor, who has been controlling the recording today in the absence of uh, Alan Hyde. So thanks very much, Ed. And we'll see you all next time. Our next uh, Motorsport Magazine podcast will be with uh, Jonathan Palmer at the end of October. We'll be going to Brands Hatch to see Jonathan and I very much hope You'll all join us again for that. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye.